Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from the Minneapolis airport, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show we came to do all the things on Linux they said could be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines to join the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Southeast Linux Fest is upon us. I am on my way there now. I hope you'll join me. It is in Charlotte, North Carolina this year, and we are excited to be back with the first in-person fest. It's going to be a little slower this year. We're going to try and get our sea legs, but we've got a number of speakers lined up, and we're excited uh, to have you. So if you can make it, the conference starts on Friday. We'll tell you more as the program rolls on. As I said, it is a free call, 855-450. Noah, you're welcome to join us. Harvey joins us from Grand Forks. Hey, Harvey, welcome into the program. You know what, Harvey? It helps if I click the button. Hey, Harvey, welcome. Harvey, do we have you? Uh, Harvey going once. Harvey going twice. Harvey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you back in the uh, call screener. I'm going to have uh, Sarah uh, pick up and make sure that uh, audio is working. And... Uh, then we'll take you back. Again, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. That is the number to join us. We're very flexible with how we take your calls. You can call, text, or you can email live at asknoahshow.com. Our first email comes from Sasha Noah. He writes in and says, hello, no and Steve. I was listening to episode 284, specifically the feedback about free speech. Now, I suspect that I have quite different political views than the both of you, but on this point, I mostly agree. You have the right to speak. You don't have a right to an audience. On a related note, this is why I like the Fediverse. Things like Mastodon and the like. To use Steve's metaphor, it's harder to ignore someone shouting when we're all on the stream street corner. Such as Twitter. With the Fediverse, you can simply have your street corner and I can have mine. If we don't like each other, we can just not interact. I think that there's no way to moderate a massive social platform like Twitter that will make everyone happy. The solution? We just don't all have to be on one big platform. So I think that's wise, sage advice. Um, Excellent, uh, excellent concept. Um, You know, I, I would also add to that that it allows people to have more meaningful conversations because when you split up into your peer group, and at least get closer to like-mindedness and allows for some of that discussion to unfold. And then, as you're interested and as you're willing, you can introduce new points of view. Again, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Our second email comes in from Howard. Howard writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I hope you're both doing great. I just wanted to update you on the Apple APFS drive mounting issue that I was having back on episode 283. At the time, I was running Linux Mint. 
and I could not get APFS Fuse to work. I'm not sure whether it was something Mint had configured or I had changed something, most likely my configuration. I'd recently nuked Mint and installed Xubuntu on my laptop and decided to try APFS Fuse again. Lo and behold, APFS Fuse worked. I had to install the Build Essential collections of packaged. App would complain if it couldn't find the GCC C++ package to build APFS Fuse. APFS Fuse is amazing and even allows access to encrypted APFS volumes. Definitely worth giving a try if you find yourself in a situation where you need access to APFS formatted drive. He links to the GitHub, which we'll have linked for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Much love and respect for the both of you, and have a wonderful day. Kind regards, Howard. So I would have told you a few years ago that uh, anything on Apple as far as the file system was a joke. And Apple's file system really was a joke for, for, for many, many years. Um, they've recently gotten a lot better and with the latest implementation of APFS. Honestly, they, they took a note from ZFS, and so a lot of the underlying design comes from things like ZFS. And so uh, it, it's come a long way, and it's, it's certainly part of our industry, particularly in the, in, the, in the media spectrum. So if you are one of those people that you're using a, a Linux-based workflow and looking for a way to access it, uh, APFS Fuse is a great way to go. And, and, you know, from my perspective, I often find myself not necessarily uh, wanting to be in a mixed environment, but I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice because the, the users that come to me have an Apple machine or it's an Apple environment. Uh, working with the church right now that is in that exact boat. And so when they hand drives over flash drives or hard drives, Sometimes, as a system administrator, you just need to be able to plug that in and access everything. One of the great things about running Linux on your desktop is you have the opportunity to run ext4. You have the opportunity to read a ZFS drive that comes out of a free NAS box, have the opportunity to do uh, NTFS or FAT32, and now um, with this package, you'll have the opportunity and ability to read uh, APFS. So, good all around. We'll give Harvey a shot again. Harvey from Grand Forks, welcome to the program, sir. Can you hear us, Harvey? Ah, I found the problem. Can you hear How me? about now, Harvey? I can. How's it going, sir? Can you hear me now? Good. I can. Good. So, my question is with uh, email. Uh, our organization uh, was using the Google... G Suite for applications or something like that, and we had them host our email, and they had a pretty slick setup to where I would create a uh, a group email and assign mm-hmm. individual email addresses to that group email, and when somebody would send an email to that group address, it would uh, disperse it to each individual email, but it would look like that email came from the original recipient. It didn't didn't look like it was a forwarded message. Well, okay. since then, uh, Google has deprecated that G Suite, and they've stood something else up. We weren't interested in it, so we moved away completely from from Google email. We've got a different email service provider. Anyways, I've set up a computer with uh, Thunderbird to act as the main hub, I guess. And so I've set up okay. the same group email, only this time, I through Thunderbird, I've set up uh, filters, I guess. And whenever hmm. someone sends an email to that group email address, it, it forwards it out to everybody. But it doesn't have the same feel, and 
if you reply to the email, you don't reply to the original recipient, and it's, it's gotten, gotten to be kind of a mess. And so I was wondering if you had a yeah. better solution for that. Yeah, yeah, you bet. So can I ask what you switched to from G Suite? <laughs> well, I, I had a, uh, a Helm server set up for my own personal email, and so I just kind of okay. tacked that email onto that server, and so that's what we've been running with. Is is Helm actually running uh, the email, or is that just doing the forwarding portion of it? That's a good question. I'm, you know, we when you when you subscribe to their service, you get a little box that you put up in your wherever home or business or whatever. And so I'm not exactly mm-hmm. sure what Helm, the Helm is doing. They provide the gateway. I think they provide the SMTP and the IMAP servers, and then the box does the rest. Okay. I have a separate computer set up with Thunderbird on it, which receives all the email and then goes through the filters and, and that. Gotcha. Yeah, so um, the the answer to your question is if you did the forwarding through Helm or whatever the service provider is, so you could use FastMail, you could use G Suite, you could use Office 365, um you could use register for less any email service that is that is acting that is creating the inboxes um, and then handling the forwarding. What you really want is one address that is receiving those, and instead of that address, then resending them back out, which is I think what you're doing. Um, what you really want is you want an alias, and you want that alias to be set to multiple email addresses. And what that's going to do. Uh, is it's going to allow when an email hits your mail server and it the destination address is that group address, it's going to deliver a separate copy of that email to each individual user. Right now what's happening is one email is getting delivered to Thunderbird and then Thunderbird through a filter and a rule system is going out and resending that email out to, to all of your individual accounts. And that's why when those people are responding, they're coming back, I'm assuming, to that Thunderbird email address as opposed to the original sender. Right, yep. But I, I don't believe um, the Helm has any kind of uh, forwarding or aliasing that you're speaking of. I can create an alias, but that comes right okay. to the, the email address that created the alias. It's not like a, it's not a group email is what I'm trying to say. Gotcha, gotcha. So that's, um, that's why... That's why I set up Thunderbird the way I did. Hmm. I'm trying to think of. All the, let me ask you this: Are you, are you, are you for for for, for the group email? Is it? Um, this is kind of a roundabout way to do that. So I'll, I'll I'll just I'll preface that right off the bat. But it occurs to me what one could do is. Well, so how do you create a new email address in, in, in Helm? Do you log into the box to create a, a new account if you, like, hire a new employee or something like that? No, it's all done through the app. You create a new user, if that's the way you want to go, and then through that user, you create an email address. And they don't have, so far as you know, through that app or through the configuration utility, there is there is no way to say, you know, I'm looking for a, you know, a group email or, or a shared inbox or anything like that? Yeah, I had sent in a ticket uh, to their support team, and they informed me that they did not have that capability. Okay, 
Gotcha. Um, so uh, I tell you, here's here's kind of the the boat you're in. I think you've got really two options. Option one is you could set up an additional domain with a group email that is just doing forwarding. So you'd register for something like you'd register with something like register for less, um, and you'd get a second domain and have and 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 assign yourself a, a a forwarding alias and then deliver that to the people in the Helm server that you want. Um, that would be one way to do it. It's not very clean because you're not using the same domain as you would before. Um, but at least when people are replying, it's not going to go to a dead Thunderbird uh, account. It's going to go to the original, uh, back to the original email provider. The other thing, I, and I'm not exactly sure how you would create the rule to do this. I'm still kind of thinking it over in my head. But I wonder if there wouldn't be some sort of a way to, when an email is responded to, to match, use the the subject line to figure out what the original uh, sender of that email was. So the reply. So when somebody replies and it hits the Thunderbird inbox, it's automatically then, with a rule and a filter, sent back to the original recipient. I would think you might be able to do that with the subject line, but not a hundred percent subject line and and, uh, and you know an, an original sender. But I'd have to think through that a little bit. That is uh, that is a situation. Yeah. Can I can I do any sort of custom scripting through Thunderbird? Um you can. It's it's pretty extensible underneath. Um so you can. I just the 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 the, the problem is you're looking for some sort of unique identifier that you can use as a way to say, you know, this reply was originally meant for for this email and in my head, I say to myself, well, if the sender isn't going to work because the sender is obviously going to be the group recipient sender is going to be whatever the address is for Thunderbird. Maybe you could match up with the, with, with the subject line, but that's only going to work to the extent that there are unique subject lines. The first time you have somebody that sends a second email in with the same subject, um, then that process breaks, right? So it's not really ideal, and I'm not... You know, if if the if where the MX record is pointed, so if the MX record is pointed at Helm, if that device doesn't support distributing to a group, then you run out of options pretty quickly because you you can't you can't do anything further with it. You can't you can't hand that email off anywhere further. Um. So I, yeah, I, I I I see where you're at. The, you know, the other thing you could do is you could set th- again. This is none of these are elegant solutions, but the other thing you could do is you could set Thunderbird so that when it forwards an email, it adds a thing saying, "Hey, this message you know originated from an external source. If you're going to reply, make sure to look into the body and reply to the original composer of the email, and not the you know the 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 Thunderbird address." Oh, sure. Yep. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for you, Harvey. No, that uh, that gives me a place to start and and uh until I can find a, uh another solution. So, thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. If uh, if you do come across something, please give me a call back or send an email cuz we'd love to know how you arrived there. Again, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Our third email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, "Good day, everyone." 
at 10 gig uh, at 10 GBE and 2.5 GBE network gear becomes cheaper and cheaper in the consumer retail market more will be looking to upgrade from a single gigabit today i came across this tp-link 10 gigabit switch which has an open box reduced item at an australian computer store I noticed that it's got micro USB for its console port. Which software and protocols would be needed to remote into a micro USB console port on these newer switches? Would the old serial-based uh, terminal software work, or is the new software required? If so, is there any open source? P.S. Is it possible to transfer files from one PC to another, uh, USB to USB, be it USB 2, USB 3, C, like we used to do in the old dial-up era with, uh, with Laplink, DOS-based software, and an old traditional serial lead? For the situations without a switch and Ethernet leads, USB USB might be a requirement for air-gapped computer in a networking environment. So there's, I've seen a couple of devices that do stuff like that. Um, typically, I think the what I've seen in the past, if you just want like a, a purchase it and use it kind of thing, it's a uh, uh, basically a shared flash drive, and you plug it into each machine, and then it gives you the opportunity to drag a file onto the flash drive and shows up on on the other machine. So I've, I've seen those. You can, if you're just looking for something you can purchase off the shelf. As to your question about uh, serial consoles, serial consoles are some of the most universal, useful things when it comes to networking and troubleshooting because they're so uh, they're so universal, um, and so it's just sending and receiving raw text. Over time, what they decided was instead of using a traditional serial cable, they would just imitate the serial to USB converter. And that's where you get the micro USB port on the front of the switch. So this is doing what you were doing with the traditional serial cable that would t- typically go into a USB to serial converter. Um, they've just built that into the switch. And so you actually see this a lot on NetGate devices. Um, any modern HP or Cisco switch. So uh, as far as software to use, I would highly recommend the Minicom software. So this is uh, free and open source software. Works with uh, USB devices, will work with the built-in USB converter on um, the the newer switches, uh, and you'll be able to open up uh, Minicom specify the device that you're using, and when you start that switch up or when you start that router up, uh, you're going to see serial uh, I guess console output coming towards you, uh, and um, you have the opportunity then to interrupt the boot sequence, do all sorts of stuff. A fantastic troubleshooting tool because even if you break the IP stack, even if you don't have any network connectivity, you still have a way to recover the device. You still have a way to talk to the device. Um, no proprietary special software needed. <clears throat> Our fourth email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, in practical terms, uh, would I see a difference using ZFS to create a pool using partitions versus whole disk? Any advice on virtual attendance for Southeast Linux Fest? So as far as uh, creating a pool uh, using partitions versus the whole disk, typically you're adding uh, entire disks to a pool, and then you're, uh, you're creating... Uh, data sets. So you're well, actually more specifically, you're adding drives to uh, uh, VDEV, and then you're using VDEVs to create the pool, and then uh, creating da- data sets on on the pool there. Um, so as far as how you make those decisions, what you're looking for is how do you want to distribute up your data across the drives? What kind of performance are you looking at, and what kind of reliability or what kind of failure uh, can you 
can you tolerate? The other part of that is how do you plan on upgrading in the future? So if you outgrow your your current storage capacity, how are you going to make the upgrade? And depending on uh, what kind of drives you would add, that's going to play a lot into how you would separate up those VDIVs. Again, 855-450, no, it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. Dot com. Uh, as far as virtual attendance on Southeast Linux, I'm going to dig into this more towards the bottom of the program, but the short version is uh, remote attendee is an option for Southeast Linux Fest this year. Now, we're inviting you to join us in person in Charlotte, North Carolina. The conference starts Friday. It runs Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We'd love to have you in person. Very excited to be back after two years of time off and doing it remotely. So this will be the first time we're back in person, so would highly encourage you to take advantage of the in-person op- option if able. But if not, uh, we do have a virtual attendance, and of course, we will be broadcasting the entire event live from the Southeast Linux Fest floor. You'll find all the details uh, over at mindrip one Well, excuse me, you'll find the details at South, southeastlinuxfest.org. Uh, you'll find the stream starting at 9 o'clock Eastern Time on Friday at mindrip1.com. Our fifth email comes in from Charlie. It says... Hi, everyone. I came across a free-cost VPN. Now, it lacks documentation on connecting to the VPN using Linux, yet it uses Linux software to host the VPN. And he links to vpngate.net. He adds, use at your own risk, and I will second that, because... any time, there's a number of different VPN providers that have come onto the scene, and I look for VPN providers that have a proven track history of protecting users' privacy. And so, if we don't have that, um, I tend to shy away from any any particular VPN. I would add to that by saying. If you are using a free VPN provider, they have almost no incentive to take your privacy seriously, to take um, your experience uh, seriously, and to provide you a decent service. So, yeah, it's use at your own risk. I would say there's actually a study a while back where a group of people put up a free VPN service just to see how many people they could get to connect, and were simply sniffing the traffic. Um, so, it's it's a it's a saying that it's a fairly risky proposition is probably putting it lightly. But VPNGate.net, if you're looking for a free VPN, check it out. And if you have any experience, I would love to hear it again. Uh, live at asknoahshow.com. Our sixth email comes in from Junior. Junior says, I laughed when you had a slip last week. The words, uh, feedback saying send your female to. It sounded like the old Vanderbilt joke. But more seriously, for the caller, James in Australia last week wanting to virtualize CAD programs, he could possibly get a Windows VPS from a company that caters to stock market day traders. They provide remote access to hosted Windows VMs on which you can install stock trading platforms, and they're mostly always Windows programs. These services support fast 2D graphics with multiple screens and lots of charts, so there must be some GPU horsepower there. Hey, thanks, Junior. I appreciate the uh, the feedback. There's a couple different things you can do. Uh, you there there are a number of uh, of specialty VPS providers. The other thing is it is getting to be more common to have this kind of thing hosted in AWS. They're getting hip to the fact that people want access to Windows VMs, and they get hip to the fact that people want access to uh, VMs that have uh, graphic cards in them. So certainly becoming more and more popular. Our seventh email comes in from Kevin. Kevin says, hey guys, quick question. I bought two of the plugs you plugged on your show recently. I've been having issues with them since purchase. Uh, 
I wrote in once, and you gave great things to try. I haven't had any success with that and wanted to reach out to the supplier for additional help. Do you know how to best contact the team at cloudfree.shop? I've tried to call, email, chat, tweet, no response. Next, do you have a recommendation for a mileage tracker for iOS? I need to report mileage for work. Doing it manually is a bear. I don't want to do that anymore. Thanks, Kevin. So here's what I would tell you, Kevin. Uh, Steve isn't here with me this week. He's out on vacation. But I will share your feedback with him. I think he's on a pretty uh, tight base with the folks over at um, cloudfree.shop, so I'll see if I can get him to get you a, uh, a, an answer on the issues that you're having. As far as a mileage tracker for iOS, have you taken a look at uh, OwnTracks? OwnTracks is a free and open source self-hosted uh, location companion service, um, so you can set it up, you can use it, uh, and allows you to keep track of your own location, build a private location diary, or you can share it with friends and family. So it's open source, uses open protocols for communication, and so you can trust that your data is secure and private. Uh, you can simply install OwnTracks on your smartphone. Afterwards, you can connect it to an existing server uh, or follow a guide to set up your own server. Either way, that might be what you're looking for, so give that a shot. Give me a call back. Let me know if that works for you. Again, live at asknoahshow.com. Our eighth email comes in from Caleb. Caleb writes in and says, Hey, no one, Steve. What talks are you looking forward to at Southeast Linux Fest? Personally, I'm looking forward to many talks, as well as the Lock Picking Village. Thanks, Caleb. So we're going to do things a little out of order. I was originally, uh, originally planning on talking about Southeast Linux Fest uh, at the end of the program. Uh, after the after our discussion news, but I'm going to jump to it because we've gotten so much feedback and there is so much interest in Southeast Linux Fest. So again, it starts this Friday. The conference starts at 9 in the morning. That's when registration happens. It's also when the broadcast is going to start. So if you want to join us, I... I can't encourage you enough. Join us in person. It'll be at the Sheraton in Charlotte, North Carolina. But if you can't make it in person, then join us remotely, either as a remote attendee or join us free at MindDrip1.com. I'm going to be picking the best or the, what, the topics that I think are interesting. We have four ballrooms, so I'm going to pick a stream from one of the four ballrooms each hour, and I'll carry it on the stream. It'll also have commentary. We'll have interviews in between. It's going to be a party. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm inviting you to come hang out and enjoy the fun with us. I think we do a better job at self than almost any other conference from a remote attendee standpoint, because we include you in the fun even if you can't be there. So we've got a number of uh, the rooms that are going to the ballrooms as well as the tracks. They're all available, exposed via Matrix. Um, and so you can sign up uh, at register org. The Linux Delta server is open for registration. So going to register.southeastlinuxfest.org will let you register for a Matrix account. From there, you can join the Southeast Linux Fest space, and that will give you a listing of all of the rooms. And so we've got a room for each track. We've got a room for each ballroom. Uh, this year is about getting our sea legs back because we've been off for a couple of years, so we're getting back into the swings of doing things in person. And so a big part of it is going to be just making sure that everything works. And so uh, some of the technical things might be a little on the slim side this year, but uh, but the interaction will be there. And so you'll be able to stream each one of the rooms uh, independently. You'll be able to participate in a chat in each one of the rooms independently. And of course, you can join us at MindDrip1.com if you want uh, free access to a select number of the talks, plus 
the interviews and stuff that we're going to be doing throughout the weekend. So we invite you to participate in that. Again, you can join at register.southeastlinuxfest.org if you want the details about the conference, either in person or as a remote attendee. I invite you to go to southeastlinuxfest.org and check that out. I'll also add that we went through extensive lengths to make sure that both the remote attendee option as well as the registration for uh, the Matrix side does not violate your privacy. We don't collect an email. We don't collect anything. It's just essentially uh, here is you want to sign up and, and, and join and participate in the fun on Matrix. You've heard us talk about the Geek Lab. You want to participate in that conversation. Now is your opportunity. We have shut public registration off. Uh, in the past because we're not matrix.org so we just don't have the capacity to have an unlimited amount of people but uh, Southeast Linux Fest is upon us and uh, is going to be powered by Matrix and so as part of that we want to give you an opportunity to sign up so go to register.southeastlinuxfest.org sign up for your free account today it will work long after Southeast Linux Fest is over and you'll continue to be able to participate in the conversation in the technical fun uh, new for 2022 is the Lock Picking Village. You heard it mentioned in the feedback. So essentially, it's bring your own picks. They welcome donations of locks that you have laying around to be added to the lock, uh, uh, the lock picking village in perpetuity. They have a variety of lock types. They have cores, a variety of different security levels. A simple pick and a turning tool will be sufficient for most of the locks, but there are a few higher security locks that require a disk detainer. Uh, or a dimple flag. And so, you know, physical security is a big part of IT security, and that's why the lockpicking village gets the attention that it does, and that's why it's as important as it is. And so if you've never if you've never participated in lockpicking before, this is a great opportunity to kind of get your feet wet. So again, the conference is going to start at 9 o'clock in the morning. The registration is for the first hour. The first talk starts at 10.15. Our live coverage of Southeast Linux Fest will start at 9 in the morning on Friday. We'll go the entire week, and we'll go Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We'll have, again, uh, select talks throughout the day uh, featured at MindDrift1.com. We'll do an Ask Noah show live from the show floor, and uh, Sunday we'll wrap up. Uh, potential talks, talks that I'm interested that I uh, am, am going to try to make some time to see, and likely the talks that you will hear if you listen to our live coverage at MindDrift1.com. Open source for love, money, or both. Dark table. Digital photo processing on Linux, smart card auth, uh, and Fedora IPA slash Active Directory. So this is going to be by uh, from Striker from Red Hat. Absolutely fantastic guy. Got my son into Minecraft and does a lot with identity management over at Red Hat. Uh, Aaron Honeycutt is doing pushing open source hardware into space. Um, our producer and host of Open Source Voices is doing introdu- introduction to Swap as a Service. Uh, we've got a geek's guide to the Russian-Ukrainian war. Did you bring a laptop to a Linux conference? That's the name of the talk. You're not going to want to miss that. Uh, the Alan Hicks. If you don't know who Alan Hicks is, one of the most respected voices in uh, networking and security, and he's giving a talk called Why IPv6 Will Never Be Adopted. Uh, Chances are that not only will that one be streamed, I'm going to try and capture some audio of it and and replay it uh, through one of the episodes. A private and sound global currency with free software. Nmap scripting for sysadmins and network troubleshooting. Take this job and shove it. Uh, Entering the Matrix by yours truly, my journey with uh, Matrix Element uh, as a communication stack. Make Ansible suck less. Automating free IPA installation and configuration. And traditional VMs 
in the era of containers. All of those talks are going to be available throughout the conference, Southeast Linux Fest, again, starting this Friday in person in Charlotte, North Carolina. So we invite you to join us. You can learn more at southeastlinuxfest.org. Org, and we invite you to join us for the live coverage of the event starting at 9 a.m. on Friday, MindDrip1.com. Again, open phones this hour, 855 450 No, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. That is the number to join us. You can call or text uh, or email. We're very flexible with how we take your feedback. It's time now. We'll get the latest from JT in uh, from the Linux Newswire. What's going on in open source this week? Mr. JT. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. The next version of GIMP will be getting CMYK support. Linux Lite has been around since 2006, and version 6, named Florite, is one of the first Ubuntu-based distros to offer a version built on Ubuntu 2204. NixOS 22.05 has been released. Microsoft has shipped a big update to their CBL Mariner 2.0 Linux distribution. Z-Standard compression firmware has been submitted for the Linux 5.19 kernel. DistroBox 1.3 has been released. Deepin 20.6 has been released. And Tails 5.1 is out. This release fixes a security vulnerability in the JavaScript engine of Firefox and the Tor browser, which was announced on May 24th. Lastly, in release news, Nitrix 2.2 is the first release of the distribution to ditch the long-term support 5.15 kernel and switch to the more recent 5.17 series by default. Full-disk encryption options have also been added as well. Red Hat has been experimenting with the NVK Nouveau open-source Vulkan driver. The Linux Mint team has stepped up to take over development of TimeShift, a Linux backup and restore system, after the TimeShift developer needed to step back from the project. NFS server changes have been merged into the Linux 5.19 kernel, and a new feature this cycle is supporting the NSFv4 Courteous Server functionality. Music streaming company Spotify will donate $109,000, or 100,000 euros, to independent, actively maintained open source projects that align with the company's core values. The FinTech Open Source Foundation, Finos, the financial services umbrella of the Linux Foundation recently confirmed the addition of new corporate members, including Google Cloud, Societe Generale, American Express, Point72, Marantis, and the Digital Dollar Project. Thank you, JT. Again, you can catch the Linux Newswire the entire week in review. It's available only here on the Ask Noah Show, middle of the program, bottom of the hour. Thanks, JT, for putting that together. So I have been playing over the past few weeks with IPFS, and I have to tell you, I am sort of blown away. So the interplanetary file system is a distributed file system that aims to fix the content problem we have on the Internet. Now, some of you are sitting there and saying, Noah, we have a problem with content on the Internet? I wasn't aware. Now you are. Um, the problem with any system is how do you get people to adopt it? Because... It's the whole XKCD thing, right? There are blah, blah, blah competing standards, and then we introduce a new one. We have not fixed anything. We just now have blah, blah, blah plus one competing standards, right? Um, and so what's interesting or what is interesting about IPFS is largely it's designed in such a way that traditional and existing websites can just pick up and move in. 
The way that we have typically used the Internet is based on location-based addressing. That is to say that we put a file on a server in a particular place, we assign an IP address, we map a DNS address to it, and we t- and then we share the bejeebers out of it and tell everyone, go to this place, go to this location, and you will find this content. And people do. And for the most part, that works. Centralizing information gives the uh, the content originator a tremendous amount of control over it. It also means that they have the opportunity to pull it back down um, if they put something up that they don't want. The problem becomes there are a number of ways for attackers or other people to take that information down. Or the original source of the information goes away and you as a consumer of that information have no no recourse. And so this leads to things like government's taking uh, information down off the internet or blocking access, restricting access to particular sites. And so IPFS aims to fix this by changing from a location-based address system to a content-based address system. And so it kind of works like this. Instead of putting the content on a particular server, assigning an IP address and mapping a DNS entry to that server and then uh, spamming the bejeebers out of it. Instead, what we do, we take a piece of content, let's say it's an image or it's a particular text file, and we calculate a cryptographic hash and we share that Merkle link. And so essentially what we're saying is this is the content you're looking for. When you find the content, it will equal this hash. So give me this content on the network. And it goes out to the network, says, who has content that matches this cryptographical hash? Somebody else on the network, a node, says, I have that content. It sends it over to you, and you have it. Now, this doesn't negate the concept of having a server. You can absolutely have a server, and in fact, IPFS encourages people to run nodes and host things on on a server. And then you can guarantee, if you're pinning that content on the server, that that content is going to be available to anybody that enters the IPFS network and, and requests that content. The the positive side of doing this, though, is when one place that is hosting that content goes down, as long as one other person on the IPFS network has the content, you're able to still access it. And so that image or that text file or whatever it was, um, was originally on a centralized server and was distributed through the IPFS network. Now, all of a sudden, somebody goes to take it down. Your client requests that particular cryptographic hash. It's going to go through and find that Merkle link and say who in the network has it, and you'll still have access to that content. Now, Merkle linking is 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 widely in use, right? This is what powers Bitcoin. It's what powers most cryptocurrencies, in fact. Um, it's what powers Git. Um, they all use Merkle linking. They're all using a Merkle tree. And so we rely on that unique cryptographical hash to identify unique contents. And so this flips the way that we're doing things on its head. It, again, the thing that is, that, that is partic- of particular interest to me is it would be one thing if just a new system came out and, and everybody just said, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this thing a different way. And now if you want to access the Internet, you have to go this way. I don't think that would have a very high likelihood of succeeding because there's people don't like when their cheese is moved. But the thing that is appealing about IPFS is it doesn't require your cheese to be moved. You have the opportunity to use the internet the same way you always have. You have the opportunity to store content, host servers the same way that you always have. You just remove the ability for somebody to 
take you out at the knees because it is no longer centralized. It's no longer in one place. It can be distributed. And so the larger that the network becomes, the more nodes that there are, the more content that is hosted, the more locations it is at, the less likely that content is to be to go away. So if I can direct your attention back, you know, about a year or so ago, YouTube DL comes out. And it comes against a number of different copyright claims and a bunch of governments and lawyers say, hey, this needs to be taken off the Internet. You saw a massive backlash of people taking the source code for YouTube DL and plastering it everywhere in images on Twitter, uh, on random websites, in every Git based, uh, you know, uh, um, version control software there was, uh, people were making copies of YouTube DL, eventually forking it, right? And this is only possible because everybody had access to the thing and everybody had a place to put it. And so what IPFS does is gives you the opportunity to ask the, the, the network for that hash and have access to that content. The other thing that is interesting is the concept of deduplication. So the file is only created once and then that Merkle link is shared all over the place. And the best example I have uh, to demonstrate this is the old Lotus Domino slash exchange example. So the example goes something like this. You send an email and it has a picture attached to it of your kids winning football uh, touchdown. And so you send that photo to one of your coworkers. And that coworker then forwards that email to a thousand other people at the company. Now, in a, in, 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 in a previous world of exchange, what would happen is every user's PST file would get a copy of that image. And so if you're ultimately responsible for every endpoint on the network, you're going to store that image a thousand times. Domino was a little bit different in that it would only store that image one time and then just simply reference the the link back to that image. So you didn't have to pay for the storage for a thousand times of the exact same copy. Uh, the way that it's it's very similar in IPFS, uh, except that you can uh, choose to pin data to specific servers. So, for example, if you have a particular, uh, you know, image or a particular text file or a particular resource that you want to be available, you can pin that to multiple nodes if you want, and then a copy is stored in multiple places. IPFS uh, stores what's known what are known as IPFS objects, which are essentially little chunks of 256 kilobytes of data. But you can have multiple objects gang together for a larger file. And so essentially you have the IPFS object that links to a collection of objects, uh, and that's how you're able to obtain your file. Now, the other thing that's interesting is the way that changes are done. Typically, when you change something on a traditional web server, you've taken the old content and made it unavailable and then uh, created uh, and then uh, and then updated it so that the, the content is now an updated version. Well, with IPFS, changes are done with versioning. So that means that the content uh, is never really is never really deleted. It's just you've created new content and the new content becomes a new hash. And so again, best way to think of this, get. How does it work in a repository when you make modifications to a code base? It's going to be very, very simpler. Um, or similar, excuse me. Then we add IPNS. So if the IPFS is interplanetary file system. IPNS is the interplanetary name system, such as DNS for IPFS. Now, you might ask yourself, where does the whole concept of interplanetary come from? Well, the idea is, if you were to go to Mars, or if Elon Musk succeeds in getting colonizing people over to Mars, you're going to have 
you're going to, if you're looking at it from a network perspective, there may be a point where Mars is no longer in sync with Earth, and so Mars is kind of out on its own little world. As long as you had nodes running in Mars, it's decentralized. It doesn't need a connection. Even if it only had a connection for 20 minutes a day back to Earth, that would be enough, uh, assuming that you push all the data up. Uh, and it will store, again, an independent copy of all of that data on those nodes. And because the hashes are identical, somebody goes looking for that particular cryptographical hash, even if they're on Mars, they're going to be able to see that. Um, and so IPNS, the name system, is assigning human-readable names to IPFS. And so essentially, much like SSH or anything else that uses cryptography, you're generating a public-private key pair, and you're taking the hash of the public key, and you're handing that out as a reference. Um, and so then we've created a pointer, and we sign it with the private key. Now, this does two things. One is it makes the content uniquely identifiable on the IPFS network. The second thing is by signing it with the private key, we ensure the integrity. So we know where the data came from, or at least that the that it is cryptographically unique to the person who signed it. And then we generate a mutable link that you can update, uh, and that's known as the content ID or the CID. Now, if you want to start playing with this, I highly recommend you check out Web3 Storage. So this is the group that is primarily responsible for developing uh, IPFS and uh, also Filecoin, which that's an entire another episode. Um, but you can go to... Web3.storage, and you can create a free account. You get a free terabyte of space on the IPFS network. And because they have a node, um, once you upload your information there, you're going to be able to share that mutable link with anybody. And all the nodes with that file go offline, the file is no longer going to be accessible. So what you want to do is either pay multiple nodes to pin that file or upload it to something like W3Storage, where... They, uh, they, they're giving you one terabyte of space with all of your files available there. Um, W3, Web3 has also gone with, uh, Filecoin, which is a way to, again, this could be, it's an, it's entire, entire own episode, but the idea here is that it incentivizes nodes by proactively distributing files so that people will keep uh, that data available to others. Essentially, they're going to rent out space to other people. And so IPFS using a blockchain technology uh, and Filecoin using a blockchain technology, Filecoin being the blockchain, excuse me, on top of IPFS, uh, allows a monetary way to rent out space to other people. So as I kind of dug into the the technical back end of this, I was highly impressed. I also was checking out things like DTube, which is a decentralized version of YouTube built on top of IPFS. But the concept is absolutely fascinating to me. And in playing with it, like, how does this work? How does this compare to things like C-File? How does this compare to things like Google Drive? Is it practical? Does it work? Um, all of those are check marks, yes, right down the board. And again, much in the same way that I'm fascinated with things like Matrix and Mastodon, because they're decentralized and don't require you to rely on one central service or one central point of failure, I think IPFS does a lot of the same thing uh, for files. If you think about what we look at or what we're looking for in the Internet, oftentimes it's the ability to get our hands on content, our eyes on content, our ears on content content. 
IPFS is a way to do that without ripping out the entire back end. Hey, again, an invitation. Join me, Southeast Linux Fest. I'm on my way there. As soon as I wrap the show, I'm getting on my flight, headed to Charlotte, North Carolina. It's going to be a fun-filled weekend. Conference starts at 9 a.m. at the Sheraton, Charlotte, North Carolina. Come join me. Join us live. If you can't make it in person, join us at MindDrip1.com. Music in our ears means we're out of time. Before we go, uh, follow us on Twitter, at Ask Noah Show. We'll see you next week, Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. Thank you.